So turn your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 16 um, through when I stop. So Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. read, Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And then they said, is this not Joseph's son? Let's pray. Lord, as we open your holy word this morning and think on the deep thoughts and uh, deep things of your scripture and of your life, we pray that you would lead us into truth that you will guard our minds from falsehood, that you will draw us close to you. Speak to us. Let your spirit move in our midst, convicting, binding, enlivening, and giving us hope. We pray this in the name of Jesus and through the spirit. Amen. Thursday, we began, um, help if I turn it on, the season of Epiphany. Uh, and this will run for about five weeks. The season, is, uh, the season of epiphany, or the word epiphany, I should say, means literally to make something manifest. Specifically then, how does Christ manifest himself to us? And how is it that we are, by correlation, to manifest Christ to the world? To manifest Christ to the world. And our next, uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 5 because these are the opening pages of where Jesus actually does that, where he manifests himself. He first appears in uh, Nazareth where he grew up. The verses previous to this tell us that he spent much time, um, 40 days as you might remember the story, in the wilderness fasting and praying and being tempted and coming out of this time of, of fierce engagement with both God and the enemy, he is full of the Spirit. He is full of power, and he is ready to make himself known to the world. And so that's what we have. Here we have his very first sermon. His very first sermon here in verses um, 16 through, what I read through? 21? 22. Now I want to give you some context about this sermon, because Jesus uh, shows up at the synagogue, and he finds this place in Luke, Luke or in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter sixty-one, verses one and two. He finds this spot in the scroll, and he and he begins to read it. And this is an incredible passage that he chooses to read here, and uh, it's directly connected to texts of scripture that go long before. So, 
we have Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 22, which describe for us what we call, or what is called, the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was a time, and for those of you who aren't familiar with it, that's okay, was a time that you got a year off, a year-long vacation. Everything, every plant, every piece of plot of land, every animal, every servant, every master, everything for a year rested and celebrated the provision of God. And that's, that's good news. And so this chain we have, we, beginning with Moses here, is prophesied in Isaiah. Isaiah says that this thing that Moses said would happen, it's finally going to happen. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and says, hey, guess what? It's happening. Right? So you can see the, the chain of Scripture that is uh, being prophesied and fulfilled here. But we have more than just a year-long vacation in the year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25 verse 10 says this, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. And it shall be a jubilee, which means celebration, right? Which I thought we were going to have when the music kicked on and we were about to do, it's like party communion. But, uh, but they brought it back down, so it was okay. Um, jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Now you can see the similarity of, of, of liberty and property and this, this, this thing that's going to happen. And so essentially what you had going on every 50th year was you had this year of rest, but you had more than that. You had debts forgiven. So if you had a really rough few years and you had to sell yourself into slavery, essentially, not slavery as you might think of slavery in like the South and Civil War and antebellum and all that, South, all that kind of thing, but, but slavery as far as an indentured servant, you were freed. Your debts were forgiven and the lands that you would have lost during that period would have returned to you. So everyone goes back to their home spot. It's a universal or I should say Israel-wide reset button. And man, Imagine the grace of that. And they talk about the amount of debt that the average American uh, owes. And if you're in college or planning to go in college, it's going to skyrocket, right? And, and so imagine that. Every debt, everything's just wiped away. It's just a universal restart there. Now, while you peasants, and yes, you peasants, are celebrating and rejoicing this wonderful time, who is not celebrating and rejoicing this wonderful time? Take a guess. Bankers, yes, right? Because all of these loans that they have, all of these well, mortgages or whatever they would have called it back then, right? all of these debts that they had, these loans that they had out, they could no longer collect on them. Who else wouldn't be happy? Slave owners. Not very happy, right? You have depended upon these people, right? And they're still indentured to you, so they still owe you money. And, and you've depended upon them to, to you know, clean your toilets and, and fix your house and vacuum your floor. And they're, they're gone. They're free. They don't like it either. If you've bought land, and maybe you've been farming this land for, you know, 40 years, that land's no longer yours. It's gone. It's going back to its original, uh, its original clan, its original owners. And so this explains why some people weren't thrilled about the year of Jubilee. In fact, by the time of Jesus, the rabbis had created something we, that is called in Greek prosbule, which means essentially that somebody, let's say, uh, I was just thinking about picking on you, but you look so sweet, and I'm not going to. So I'll pick on Laura. Laura is... Uh, 
has, has, you know, uh, has, all of these, has all of these loans, and she owes me all these loans, and, and I know the year of Jubilee is about to happen, and so sh- her debts are going to be forgiven, so what am I going to do? I go to the Jewish court, and I, pr- I get this writ, this prospule, I get this writ, and I write it down, and basically what it means is it means that when the year of Jubilee is over, Laura still has to pay me. And so they've created a loophole. Imagine that, right? People in power, people who have money, people who are in authority, creating loopholes. I mean, I know that's ridiculous. No one ever does anything like that. But a loophole is created so that Jubilee can be completely circumvented. This is why Jesus accuses these rulers, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these teachers of the law, these people who are in positions of authority. He says, for the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God. And this is why, as a side note, we ought to always beware of any church or any teacher or any group of people that want to take their traditions and use their traditions to interpret or to guide or to overrule Scripture. Scripture, Jesus says here, always, always, always stands above our traditions. Yes? Yes. So... This is why we as a church uh, hold to Scripture and Scripture only. Now Jesus says in verse 19 of the text that we read, he concludes this, uh, reading this uh, passage from Isaiah chapter 61 verse 2. He says that I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so what do people hear? What What do all these people in the synagogue, what do they hear when he says this? They hear this chain. They hear Isaiah said, there's a time that's coming when finally, and this is what's interesting, we have no record, either in Scripture or outside of Scripture, of Israel ever keeping the year of Jubilee. We have no historical evidence of it ever happening in all of that time. So Isaiah says, there's going to come a time, and the year of the Lord's favor is going to happen. It's going to happen. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, remember what Isaiah prophesied? Remember what Moses told you you ought to do? I'm telling you now, it begins begins and so you can imagine everyone standing there saying my goodness those are those are good words because what do they hear they hear the forgiveness of debts they hear freeing of of indentured servanthood they hear getting their land back they hear of that restart that grace so wonderful they also hear him saying that i am the anointed what did that text say the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me and what's that word in greek anointed in greek christ and then in Hebrew, Messiah, right? So Jesus, at the same time, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, he is also claiming his Messiahship, his Christship, his kingship, in order to make this happen, which explains then why they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, didn't I see this kid, like, running around, and now he says he's the Messiah? You can imagine the doubt that it would have caused in them. But it's more than just them saying, well, I saw this kid when he was yay high and saw him snotty-nosed little brat running around. He is striking against their teachers. He's striking against their tradition. He is setting himself up against the status quo. He is proclaiming liberty. He is proclaiming good news. He is proclaiming salvation. And those people who are very happy with things as they are are very uncomfortable with those kinds of teachings. So with that backdrop in our minds, with that sort of historical um, context, let's move into what Jesus is actually declaring. He says that he has come to declare good news 
for the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. Remember that this word good news, which in, our, our, in English is two words, good news, could mean many things. Uh, in Greek, it's one word, euangelion, and that meant something very specific to them. It meant that a Roman um, envoy from the imperial court, Caesar himself, or, or some other dignitary, was coming into town, and because he's coming into town, it's good news, rejoice, Caesar's coming, and get ready for it, right? Except for, it's not good news for Jews, Right? It's not good news if you're being oppressed by that government. It's not good news for them. It is very, very bad news. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is turning this, this word that they know so well on its head. He says, no, today I am bringing you good news. I am bringing you Uangalion. I am the king that is coming. And it's going to be good news because it is coming to the poor. It is subverting what you have always expected and what you have experienced. I am I am coming to them. Now, what does this word mean, poor? Because we have a word, when we use that word, we probably have a lot of thoughts that go into our modern mind. We think of maybe homeless people or people down at maybe Kalamazoo Gospel Mission or we might think of people, if you've been to a big city, people on the street. Like you have lots of things going through your mind and that isn't necessarily what Jesus is talking about. Now, who is Jesus talking to? He is talking to his people he is talking to all of those people who have suffered oppression, who have, who have suffered uh, this kind of oppression from Rome. And that is the entire body of the Jewish people except for the Jewish elite. And so while I think we, when we read poor, we want to sort of make it small and say, well, it's just talking to like these homeless people or something like that. It's much broader. In fact, I would put it in this wording. I would say that is Jesus is the king for the common man. That Jesus is the king for the common man. He is coming for the person who is not in charge of vast amounts of money, vast amounts of employee, vast tracts of land. In fact, what do we see when Jesus shows up? Where does he show up at? Bethlehem. Right? That's where he's born. You remember the prophecy? Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Too small, too least. So small that you don't even get to be a clan. Right? You don't even get to be a clan. You're so small, you're insignificant. No one's coming there. You're too small for a Waffle House. You are that small. No Waffle House for you. And that's, that's sad. Just sad. I started thinking about Waffle House. Like, I just got myself sidetracked. You're so small. <laughs> and now I'm hungry. You're too small. Too small to be any of any significance. And so Jesus shows up in this place. He shows up where shepherds come, right? Common people who are working third shift. He shows up in homes of people who are just, I mean, they're just everyday folks. He is a king for people like us. People who need salvation. People who are working jobs, who are just pushing through. He is a king for the people. He... Uh, judges the world in righteousness. He judges the world, as we read in, in um, Psalm 96, the peoples with his faithfulness, that when he looks to see who he's going to come to, he doesn't judge the way we judge, because what do we look for? We look for people who can do things for us. We look for people who have influence or wealth or power or, or beauty or intelligence or who can get us somewhere. God doesn't look for that because he doesn't need anything. God who is infinite in glory, infinite in power, infinite in beauty, infinite in intelligence, infinite in wisdom, infinite in all things. This God doesn't need any of our pretenses. He doesn't need any of it. 
And so he can see through all of that junk that we put up. See to the true things. He brings good news to people like us. Now some might say, well, what about poverty then? Like, what do we, what do we say? How is it good news to the people of the common man or even, even to the de- desperately poor? Because how can it be good news if it doesn't come in cash? Right? I, uh, I had some friends, um, uh, we're, we're friends that I went to college with, uh, the, the three of us, and, and we were in like, we had like this Facebook messaging thing that, so we talked back and forth because um, we don't live in the same places. And I got a, a ping last night and said, it is n- the Powerball is now $900 million. Did somebody just say amen? I could have swore I heard an amen. No? Okay. I mean, I wasn't going to rebuke you or anything. I just thought it was funny. $900 million. And so there was some conversation. I don't know if you've heard of this or not, but there was some conversation between the three of us about what one would do with that much, that much cash. It's a lot of the green, you know. And um, my answers were terrible. They didn't like them at all. I got thrown under the bus. But, um, I, you know, I've, I've, seen, I've seen, as I started looking this up, because I wasn't familiar with it, uh, there's all kinds of speculation about this. Well, what would you do with this much money? What would you do with this much money? I wonder if Jesus would ever ask that question. I wonder if Jesus would ever ponder or even be concerned in any way or even interested in $900 million. What would Jesus say about all of that stuff? Because I think what Jesus does, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he says, I've got good news for the poor, but it doesn't come in cash or land or anything like that. What does he do instead? He reorders everything we think about what wealth is. He changes the way we see the world. I love this text here. Therefore, do not be anxious for Matthew. Did I put it up there? I did. Good. Matthew 6, 31 and 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? $900 million could bring you a lot of different things, couldn't it, in those, in those aspects. He says, that's not the way that we think. Because Gentiles run after those things. And, and, and to put some context there, there's either Jews that are the children of God, and then there's Gentiles who are not. These are people who are outside of God's grace until we get into Acts and this revelation of God reaching out to all people and that's another sermon and so I won't go into it but he's saying there are believers and there are unbelievers let's put it that way and unbelievers seek after these things but your heavenly father knows that you need them all so what should you do seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you and so what does this text do this gives us A God's eye, it's kind of small, sorry guys, I didn't realize how small that would show up. A God's eye view, it allows us to see the world the way God does. And when God looks at you, he knows, because he's God, and because we who are not that intelligent know this too. You shouldn't be naked, you shouldn't be hungry, and you you, you need shelter. Like These are things that everybody understands this. And God sees that you need this, and so why would you fret about this when he clothes the, 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 the flowers with beauty, and he feeds the birds, and he takes care of all of creation, and why are you fretting over your daily bread? God knows you need it, and he'll provide it. And so he removes from us this, this anxious worry about today and tomorrow and the day after, and he says, listen, trust in me. Trust in me. We are living proof that trusting in God he will provide. God, or, or Jesus also does this. He lengthens our vision. 
So he sees today, he says, look, today God is with you and he sees your need and he can meet your need. Trust in him and don't worry about these things. But he also stretches our vision. He lengthens it out because what does he say? He says, unbelievers are worried about today. Unbelievers are thinking about $900 million and how many boats and cars and and trips to Bermuda that can buy me. But we understand what? We understand that all of that stuff is passing. How long can you enjoy that vacation? For a week and then you need another one, don't you? How long will that boat or that drink or that affair or that house, how long will those things last you in pleasure? That short, finite little bit of time and then as soon as it's done, you're hollow again and need something else. And so he lengthens our vision. He says, this is what unbelievers do. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other stuff, all of these things that you need, they'll be added to you because the richness of God's wealth is not limited. It's unlimited. And God can pour out and pour out and pour out. But what is he most interested in pouring out? I'm sorry if this disappoints you, but it isn't Lexuses. Lexi. Lexi? BMWs. We can pluralize that with no problems. It isn't that stuff. He wants to pour out you things that are eternal. Righteousness. Purity. Truth. Grace. Mercy. Things that cannot be stolen, things that cannot be lost, things that will never empty themselves of their power. That's why when he's speaking to that woman at the well, he says, listen, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for water. And she says, well, you don't have a bucket. And he says, you're missing the point. I can give you streams of living water, stuff that doesn't die out, hope that doesn't disappoint, even in the day that is very dark. And some of you this morning are in very dark days. And all of you this morning have at some point in your life been in very dark days. And if we see the way that God sees, and we can, straight, if we can lengthen our vision to the way that God sees, everything would be shifted and changed. And the way that we saw wealth, the way that we talked about the world, the way that we thought about our lives, all of that stuff would be changed. So we see that today, in God the Father, we have, as believers in him, no worries We can see into the vastness of eternity so that we can seek first the kingdom of God. Isn't that good news? In a day and an age where everything is a commodity, everything is a commercial, everything is a consumable product, it is good news to hear there is something that lasts. And it comes through the anointed one of God. It comes through Jesus. And this is true freedom. This is true liberty. Man, uh, we've been without TV so long I happened to be somewhere this week where I was able to watch a little bit of TV with commercials and all this stuff, and I thought to myself, my goodness, we are enslaved. We are enslaved people. We are enslaved to desire. We are enslaved to beauty. We are enslaved to newness. We are enslaved to this just constant consuming. And Jesus says, I have liberty for you. You notice he uses that twice. He says, liberty to the captives, and liberty to those who are oppressed. And yet Jesus didn't go around um, sucker-punching loan sharks and, and kicking over slave owners. He didn't do that. But what did Jesus do then? How does Jesus change our perspective on this? He does the same thing he did with wealth. He gives us that God's eye view. He changes the way that we see things. You remember John 3.16, God so loved the world 
they gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do we know John 3, 17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So why didn't Jesus go around sucker punching loan sharks and, and kicking slave owners in the teeth? Because there is a deep and controversial truth that you have to realize that all of the people that you hate, God loves. And his desire is to see the slave and the slave owner saved. His desire is to see liberty happen as well. But his desire came through Jesus first to bring salvation. Believe me, judgment's coming. Uh, there's no doubt about judgment coming. He will come in passion and fury and fire, and he will judge the world eternally. But right now, you and I are in a, a wonderful time of advantage. We have an opportunity to receive salvation, whether you're slave or slave owner, whether you're oppressed or oppressor, whether you're indentured or the one who is indentured by to, by. Whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, you find an opportunity to hear and to believe and to come to Jesus, to experience true liberation. Because freedom can always be taken away in this life, can it? I, they, they say that it's like, like a month, that most Americans have like about a month, and then you're, you're, you're so far in debt you can't do anything. Like, you, you, you know, uh, tomorrow everything can change and you could lose it all. You could lose it all. Our fortunes turn on a dime here, as it were. But in Jesus, once we experience freedom and true liberty, those things cannot change. And so what we see with Jesus is this liberty that is real, and it begins with something that is very controversial to us. It is God's love to the oppressor, but it's also that God does not favor the oppressor. Uh, if you are the oppressor, you are the strong, you are the mighty, you are the, the one who is in control, and you are the one who is empowered. And we are all at some point, all of us, grasping after that, trying to get that. And this lets us see that in Jesus, we don't need that. How interested was Jesus in, in, in power? How interested was Jesus in money? How interested was Jesus in making people believe what he believed? He let crowds go. In fact, he would say things that were intentionally controversial to get people to leave. And Jesus wasn't interested in any of those worldly things. And so we shouldn't be either. But he also lengthens our vision. God reorients the way that we see the world. He lengthens it. And so whether you are struggling today underneath some version um, some version of suffering, some version of oppression, uh, God can give you a better vision. We get this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are Insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And this allows us to do something very important as we see these versions of suffering. This, P Peter is writing this letter to churches that are actually suffering deep, deep persecution. And he says, listen, you can be patient in your suffering. Why? Because you know that Jesus endured it first. That he went through all of it and more. That he experienced all of your suffering and more. And he says, in your situation right here, you are experiencing what he experienced. So he is with you. He is with you. 
as you struggle. But it also gives us this wonderful hope, again, that back to that scandalous thing. It allows us to witness to Christ's glory because the one who is coming down on you, whether we're talking about a tyrant parent, a tyrant husband, a tyrant wife, a tyrant boss, whatever you are facing in that situation, you are equipped to bear witness to Christ so that when somebody comes at you, you have Confess Jesus' name to them, that you've begun to tell them that you've acted in humility instead of responding in evil for evil, and they can see Christ in your life. And then if that continues, you then bear witness to the glory of Christ, and the Spirit of God is on you, is on you. Which is a completely different way of seeing suffering than the way the world sees it, right? Fight it, kill it, shoot it, you know, get rid of it. Jesus says, you can subvert it. As I did. You can subvert it. And this leads us back finally to the fact that we are then prophets and priests. And what do prophets do? They call out oppression. They say that is unjust. And this is a church full of people. Full of broken people. But we can recognize when there is injustice happening. We can't change injustice necessarily. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. But we can always call injustice out. What's interesting about Jesus is he walks the length and breadth of Israel all the way from Galilee back to Judea, passing through even Samaria, where no one would pass. They would go all the way around it. He went all the way through it. And what did he do that whole time? He confronted power. And he condemned sin. And he spoke of grace. We are called to be those people. That Jesus who has liberated us and changed the way we see the world has now allowed us to be world changers as well. To bring people to the light of knowledge and to the grace of Christ. Which brings us to the final thing that Jesus talks about. I know I kind of did them out of order a little bit. Um, Jesus says that he has come to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. And of course, this is very literal in the sense that Jesus goes and he, he does heal people. He puts his hand on their eyes and, and he heals their vision. But he does more than just heal their vision. He reveals himself to them. He manifests himself. Right? A season of Epiphany. Catch that? Catch the ring device I just did there? I want to pat on the back later. There's this text where he's speaking um, in Matthew chapter 13. And he says, Today the words of Isaiah the prophet are fulfilled. You will indeed hear, but you will never understand. You will indeed see, but you will never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they see with their eyes hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and I would turn and I would heal them. This leads us to understand the call of Christ on us this morning. As we think about how Christ revealed himself to us and how we are to reveal Christ to the world, it speaks a word of condemnation, a word of fear. It says those people who are even hearing Jesus' voice, they're looking Jesus in the face. They have seen his miracles. They have heard his teaching. And what have they done? They have said, no thank you. And so what is their place? They can enjoy $90 million in life. That's their only hope. It's their only hope. And when 
40, 50 years of that, assuming they win it around the time I live. 40 or 50 years of that are done, it's done. And you stand before God and answer for what you've done in the body. And so Jesus' message here is he reveals this prophecy from Isaiah isn't to say, hey, that's good news. I'm glad that your heart is hard. I'm glad that you have ears that don't hear and I'll, you know, I'll see you later. No, he's pleading with them that if you would hear that prophecy, you would say, I cannot let that be me. And whether you've never come to Jesus or you are a Christian who's kind of wandered away, because that happens, we all get lost sometimes. You would hear the voice of Jesus and you would come to him. The good news happens in verse 16, which says this. Blessed are you, your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. As he speaks to his disciples who have heard him, who have seen him, and they're smaller, they're much smaller than the vast crowds that have heard and seen and haven't believed. This small crowd of disciples have gathered around him, and he says to them, blessed are you. Blessed are you. So this is a word of hope and encouragement for those of you here today who have placed your full faith and trust in Jesus as we've talked about him bringing good news to the common person, as we've talked about him relieving us of our fear of today, lengthening our vision for tomorrow, liberating us from the oppression and captiveness of sin and degradation and death. We have great hope. And so we ought to revel in that. I, I'm so appreciative of the set that the praise team played today because all of it, all of it was directed toward the victory and the glory of Jesus Christ. And you, if you are a believer here today, you have a place in that glory. You, as we read, the spirit of glory is on you. So rejoice with great joy. As we come to a conclusion this morning, we offer a hymn of invitation that if anyone does not know Jesus, if anyone needs prayer, if anyone has wandered from the faith, if anyone has never been baptized, we invite you to come forward and to stake your claim in Christ again or for the first time. Or if you are not a member of the church and you want to become a member of the church, we invite you to come forward and join us as together we seek to share Jesus. Or if you're sitting there in your seat today, God is still speaking to each and every one of you. What do you need to change? Where do you need to grow? How do you need to celebrate? How do you need to share Jesus. Don't let today go by without evaluating your life again and following him more closely. Let's stand as we sing.